right, we are back. Shout out to all of our listeners and fellow sports card enthusiasts. If you are new to the show, welcome to the 615 Collector. My name is Doug Turner, and my partner here is Brandon Turner, and we are your hosts of this show that's dedicated to the world of sports and sports cards. Hello, everybody. Welcome to all of our listeners. Welcome back, and welcome to the new ones. We're glad you're here. Uh, quick reminder before we get started that we are independent. We do not take sponsorships or get paid by anybody that we talk about in our show. That's intentional so that you can rest assured the information we provide is unbiased and is not financially motivated. Yep, and so today is going to be a little bit different because we actually do not have our normal show today because we've got a special treat. We've got a guest interview that we're really excited about. Uh, And so that's actually going to be the entire show today is going to be the interview. So we'll cut to that here in just a second and then we'll come back and do a quick uh, outro to wrap up the show. But we're excited because today we have... Jerry Helper, who is, uh, has been a longtime executive in the National Hockey League. He spent the last more than 20 years with the Nashville Predators. He was one of the first uh, and, and, uh, pr- uh, employees of the Preds and helped them get started, brought them to Nashville and helped get that expansion team started. He's a senior vice president and senior advisor for the Preds. He announced his retirement at the end of last year. Uh, we've known Jerry for a while and thought it would be fun to have him on a show to talk a little bit about his experience in hockey because he, he was with three different teams, Tampa Bay, Nashville, and Buffalo, and then mm-hmm. also worked for the league itself. And so it's a fun interview. I think we're going to do it in two parts because we had a ton of stuff we wanted to get to, but we ended up running a little long, so we weren't going to cover everything in one interview. Jerry said he'd be willing to come back, so we're probably going to have part one and part two. Today will be part one. And hope everyone enjoys it. We'll cut to that now, and then we'll come back and wrap up. All right, so we are joined today by Jerry Helper. Jerry is a, uh, he's now retired at the end of, of last year, I believe. But Jerry was the senior vice president and advisor for the Nashville Predators. Jerry had a storied 40-plus year career with, started, I think, with Buffalo Sabres organization, and then with the uh, the league itself, and then uh, the startup franchise of Tampa Bay, and ultimately culminated here in Nashville for, I guess, I don't know, maybe the last 20 plus years or so. So Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you both. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on and uh, I look forward to this. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you here. We're really excited about uh, today's interview and having you on the show and get to talk about our beloved Preds because, you know, the Predators actually so I, I, I follow as a kid, followed pretty much all sports. I was just love sports growing up. Mostly I was basketball, baseball, football, but I followed some hockey and tennis and golf. You know, if it was a sport, I wanted to watch it. But it really wasn't until we came to Nashville and the Preds came to Nashville that we started really getting in because never had a local hockey team where I grew up. And so when the Preds were when we moved here and the Preds were in town, really started getting into hockey and uh have really enjoyed it i think the preds have been a very fun organization to follow and be a fan of and i know that's uh in no small part to a lot of the work that you've done with them but before we get into that i just would like to hear about and tell all of our listeners just kind of how did you even get started in the space did you you know did you i know you grew up in buffalo at and and did you play hockey as a kid is that something you're interested in or it's ironic that growing up in Buffalo, uh, I did not play on ice. You would think there was ice everywhere, but there was not. 
but I loved the game and played a lot of street hockey in the winter and so on. So I was an avid fan. And, uh, you know, when I was 12 or 13 is when the Buffalo Sabres became an NHL team. So I was, you know, a passionate fan during my, my high school years and the like. Uh, I went to St. Bonaventure, uh, which is on the New York, Pennsylvania border. And my goal at that time was to become a sports writer, uh, realizing at a pretty early age that I wasn't going to be of a caliber to play professionally <laughs> in any of the sports, which yeah. I love. Uh, but I figured being a writer would be a way to stay close uh, and be close to sports. So I took a lot of writing courses. And as I got into my junior and senior year, I took a couple of PR and marketing courses and also interviewed the Buffalo Sabres PR director uh, for my thesis that I had to complete for my senior year. And it was Thanksgiving of senior year. And I just threw out a question at the end of our 20, 30 minute interview. I said, hey, I'm going to be at home for Christmas break. Any chance I could come in and learn a little bit about what you guys do from a PR perspective? And uh, thankfully, he was a St. Bonaventure alum and was kind of a carefree guy. And he just said, yeah, you know what? I don't know what we'll have you do, but come on in. We'll figure something out. So I'm thinking I'm going to get to see five games for free at a time when the team was sold out and I'm a senior in college. Uh, so I came in, I worked the five games. I was basically, he had me doing stats in the press box for the coaches. Uh, Cause back then it was very unsophisticated in terms of there was basically a head coach and there were no assistants. There was wow. no use of video yet. It yeah. really hadn't become a thing. Uh, so I kept some stats and that uh, reached the end of the month. And I said, Hey, if I could, get up here for the remaining games. Can I keep doing this? Thinking I'm having fun. Yeah. I wasn't thinking of it beyond anything like that. And Paul Whelan, who was the PR director said, well, sure. Uh, it was a little bit of a bold offer on my part because the school is 75 miles from Buffalo oh, and wow. I did not own a car. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. It, it meant when I got back to campus, I was going to have to beg, borrow, steal, convince people to drive up and so on. Uh, so we were able to do that. And uh, as the season ended, Paul said, hey, I'm trying to hire an assistant, but I've been trying to do it for five years. Hasn't been okayed in the budget. I'm going to take another run at it this year. If you'd like to be considered, bring your resume in. It was the first time I even gave it a thought that there were careers in that part of the yeah. industry. But once he said it, my heart was set on that's where I want to be, you know, working for the hometown team, uh, so on and so forth. So I quickly got in my resume, graduated in May, and I'm thinking, well, this is no big deal. He's going to get this done in a, in a heartbeat. And, and he had basically told me, he said, if I get it approved, you're my first choice. Nice. Yeah. So that takes me even further along the path. So I did what I would not recommend to any uh, college senior. I didn't send any more resumes out. <laughs> because this was the job I had my eyes set on. Nice. I had no idea how the business world worked and how budgets worked. I just, all I heard was, you're my choice if I can get it done. Well, we go through the entire summer and he has no news, no updates. And now I'm starting to think maybe I made a mistake not sending out any resumes because <laughs> I'm feeling if we get to Labor Day, which Back then, Labor Day really was the signal of a new season. Training camp was okay. about to start. Um, thankfully, the Tuesday after Labor Day, he called me and said, hey, they just approved it. Come on in for your formal interview. And I started literally within a couple of days. Very and nice. 
that is how I I got my foot in the door, uh, entry level position, doing all the normal PR duties, press releases, game notes, running the press box, and that, uh, and doing it for a team I had grown up with. That's cool. Uh, yeah, you know, idolizing those players, and and that was one of the biggest challenges was going from a fan of 21, 22 years old, idolizing these guys. And now I got to walk into the locker room and act as if I can ask them to do things, <laughs> whether it be media yeah. interviews, uh, signing autographs, doing appearances and that. That was quite an introduction for me. Oh, so I, I spent about seven years with the Sabres and uh, it, it was just a, a great starting point for my career. Oh, I bet that. Yeah, it would be it would be really hard. I can imagine. I, I grew up being a huge Denver Bronco fan. And I remember the first time I got to meet like John Elway, I got to go on the practice field with several of the players and meet Elway and a bunch of the guys and just being awestruck. And, you know, and you're just because like you said, as a kid, you're just kind of idolizing some of these guys. And and so I can't imagine. Yeah. Now being in a place where you have to sort of flip and say, OK, I've got to, you know, and it was truly like an overnight change. Yeah. I mean, on Labor Day, I was nothing more than a fan. Yeah. And three days later, I'm an employee. Yeah. And my responsibilities are to coordinate these things, which required player interaction. And these were the guys, you know, just months ago, I had been watching in the playoffs on TV, so on and so forth. So, yeah, that was a, a big, big step. And I was fortunate that uh, Paul Whelan, the gentleman who hired me, he really gave me a lot of room to grow. Uh, he gave me a lot of immediate responsibilities and gave me a, a guideline for, for how to grow in that and, and gave a lot of rope. Like he would give me assignments and basically he didn't want to see them till they were done nice. uh, or hear about them till they yeah. were done. So it, it really did force me to learn on the job training, if you will. That's cool. Well, and it sounds like you had conviction too, right? That's good. You had conviction that you were going to get that job. You didn't have any other options available. You know? So it's like, you know, that's, that's actually a that's good a, thing. Yeah, that's well, a, that's a kind way of looking at it. Because yeah. Well, that tends to be how people yeah. know, like, will get things. So I am curious, <laughs> let's real quick on, on, uh, it's St. Bonaventure, I believe, right. Is the name of the school yeah. that you went to school. At. So I'm curious, I was doing some homework on that and, and it sounded like you had two schools that you were interested in. Is this correct? There was St. Bonaventure and possibly Notre Dame. The reason I ask you is because my grandfather was actually a very, a, I don't know, 30, 40 year professor in the geology department at Notre Dame. And so I have a lot of great memories of visiting him in South Bend, Indiana and getting to run across the field and all that kind of stuff. So Tell how did so yeah you tell us a little bit about that you had two schools I guess you were looking at yeah and St Bonaventure was one I kind of fell in love with back as a 11 12 year old uh, going to some basketball games uh, nice. St Bonaventure back then played Canisius a Catholic school in Buffalo and Niagara uh, right near Niagara Falls they were what was called the little three and before uh, pro sports before the Sabres and then the NBA Braves were in town, those three college teams would play double headers in Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. And they were a big, big deal. And that was my first exposure. I went to a St. Bonaventure game and kind of fell, fell in love with it because it was a team that had Bob Lanier. I was going to uh, ask yeah, you about, we were that. Talk yeah. about that. And I, yeah. I honestly want to say, I also, like you mentioned that like those colleges were like really big deal. And I think 
back then is it true to say that like college was like college basketball was like a much bigger deal than like professional yes 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 because the, the the nba was still pretty young back in 1970 I mean, a lot of people probably don't realize the nba is the youngest of the four major pro yeah. sports leagues mm-hmm. um so you know the college basketball particularly in the northeast was really big uh, and so St. Bonaventure, they had this terrific team with Bob Lanier as the centerpiece and went to the final four. And so, you know, everybody in Western New York was kind of captivated by the team. And I decided kind of at that stage, that's where I'm going to go to school. Now, I had no idea what they offered as majors or anything like that at 12 or 13. But as I got into high school and then started to look at where did I want to focus my uh, education on, uh, they had a really good journalism school, very highly regarded, had turned out a handful of Pulitzer Prize winners and so on. So that was really the one I was targeting all along. Notre Dame, to be honest, was, uh, again, Notre Dame had a, a big history in the Western New York area because of the Catholic background, uh, yeah. Buffalo, a lot of Catholics and so on. So that was as much, hey, Notre Dame's the premier Catholic school. It's the national school. You got to apply. Uh, (laughs) But I really didn't have a lot of expectations with that one. But St. Bonaventure was the more, more realistic. And uh, as it turned out, the the better fit for me, it's a smaller school. It's not a lot bigger than when I went there with about 1800 undergrads. Most of them live on campus, because it is a school that is in a relatively remote area. It's 75 miles directly south of Buffalo. Uh, not a lot around it. So, you know, you get your education, but you really get a life experience because your school community is your family as well. And you really, you learn a lot more than what you learn in the classroom because of that environment. And uh, I've always been appreciative for that. And uh, it it really set me on a good path. Well, and they seem to have, you know, I feel like St. Bonaventure has been a, a team that it's kind of always been a little bit of a Cinderella story in the tournament for the past several years. They seem to have a pretty a decent basketball team uh, that that makes some waves every now and again. Are but, they the team? Are they the team that like never dribbles? Is that the school that I'm thinking of? I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, no, I, I don't. That path. I was I just don't, curious. No, that this past season it was a team that had five seniors, okay. uh, and they were considered like the Iron Five because each one of them played about 38 minutes a game. Uh, yeah, yeah. The poor guys on the bench, uh, <laughs> I don't know if they knew there were two halves in a game because <laughs> they weren't going to see the court in uh, in the first half for sure. But they, they had, and they had won their conference, the Atlantic 10, as juniors. They won the regular season and then uh, won the conference tournament, so made the NCAA a year ago. But they've had a string for the last 10 years with uh, their coach, Mark Schmidt, where they've been very, very competitive. Uh, I'm extremely proud of them because it is one of the two or three smallest schools playing D1 basketball, and yet they are very competitive yeah. in a in a very quality conference. The Atlantic yeah. Ten with you know Davidson, VCU, Richmond, uh, yeah. Yeah. St. Louis, and that, and they're they're right in there. So yeah. uh, to me, that's and and they graduate really good kids. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, that's, that's the other part I'm I'm proud of is uh, absolutely. I am. I think I mentioned offline that I'm on the board of trustees there, and I've been back there for a couple of meetings. And one thing I've offered to the journalism school is I said I'm happy to come in a day early and meet with a classroom or two or uh, meet with individual students. And I I've done it now a couple of times, and a couple of the basketball players are journalism majors or mass com majors. And I've been so impressed that they have shown up at every class I've been asked. Uh, yeah. I don't think it was for me. I think it's that's their commitment that they're going there to get an education as well as play basketball. So I really like that it, they are truly student athletes at that school. That's really cool. So let me ask you. So then you so you start with Buffalo. You're with the Sabres for several years. And I'm curious because who, kind of who some of the players and coaches, if I if I was looking at it right, was the because this coach is legendary writing right, NHL Scotty Bowman is that the right pronunciation of his name? That is correct. And, and, and I would say there's part of me that wants to say he's the Bill Belichick of the NHL, but then I think that would be a disservice. I think it's more like Bill Belichick is the Scotty Bowman of the NFL because he, he came he along is. before Bill, but he like something like nine Stanley Cup championships that he's had to his name. Yeah, the only place he didn't win one was Buffalo. Was Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but Yes. I mean, there again, it kind of goes back to where I said, you know, you walk in from being a fan one day and now you're working uh, for the team and with these people. And so if you can imagine walking in my first day and the new coach and general manager of the team is fresh off having won four consecutive Stanley Cups with Montreal. Wow. Scotty Bowman. That'll be a little intimidating. Uh, yeah. And he's become the the winningest coach in NHL history, and I don't think anybody will catch his record. But uh, so I was able to learn from the greatest coach in the game uh, nice. in my early days. And we had some terrific players uh, from Gilbert Perrault, who's in the Hall of Fame, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt you there because I'm glad you I was looking up before the show how to pronounce his name because I was going <laughs> to ask you about him because I was going to say Gilbert Perot and then I saw it's it's actually Gilbert Perot. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So he was uh, a terrific player. Uh, but during our tenure there, uh, Scotty acquired a lot of first round picks. So uh, we drafted Phil Housley uh, at 18 right out of high school, which back then that was pretty, that, that was a rarity for someone to jump from high school into the NHL. And he's, he was a redheaded 18 year old, about 5'10", 165 or so. Uh, and he shows up in camp. And I think the, the veteran players were looking around like, is this a new stick boy we brought in or something? Uh, and then he stepped on the ice and it was like magic watching him skate and handle the puck and so on. So th that was the one year. The next year, we draft an 18-year-old goaltender out of uh, high school in the Boston area, Tom Barrasso, who uh, you know came in, was the NHL Rookie of the Year and the Vezina Trophy winner as the top goaltender at 18 years of age. Wow. So you know, being a part of those, and it, it's ironic that then about six years or so ago. Uh, Phil Housley got inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, and uh, he had been an, he had joined us as assistant coach here in Nashville. So I reminded uh, he and his wife. I said, you know, I was the one who gave him his first jersey uh, because <laughs> back at, in those days, and actually still today, the draft is usually held in an arena, and the top prospects are in the building. 
then they're selected, they're announced, and then they come from the seats down to the draft floor and meet the people and so on. And usually the PR representative for the team is standing there waiting for the first pick to give them his jersey. He takes his suit coat off and puts the jersey on. So I like to remind Phil that, you know, I, I helped give you the jersey that set you on your path to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's cool. That's very nice. And so, and then I guess, so you were with them for a number of years and then decided to go to the league and actually work for the league office. And that was that in New York? It, it was, it was in Manhattan. Uh, and it was a great experience. You know, you, you go from the team where you're worried about wins and losses and, you know, how players are hot and cold and so on to at the league, you're dealing with bigger picture issues, um, you know, league discipline, policies and procedures. Uh, and as it turned out, as my four years there went on, expansion. Yeah. And ironically, uh, for anyone who's never worked in sports, working for the league is really close to the game. Hmm. You know, even though you don't have a rooting interest, I can remember the president of the league at the time was John Ziegler. And somebody once asked him, well, what do you root for? And John Ziegler said, at the league office, we root for ties and sellouts. Yep. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. We, we can't pick a team favorite. We have yeah. to root for, we're, we're equal <laughs> opportunity. Uh, but I found as I went through my four years with the league, I actually missed that team part where you win, you lose, you're, you have something in common with your, your fellow uh, workers and so on. So I really had an interest in going back to a team and the ironic part was we were about to expand as a league. And I knew from my Buffalo days, I joined the Sabres in their 10th season. And there were still, it was a small office to begin with, but a handful of those people had been there from the very beginning. And no matter how many of the stories I kind of knew from being a fan, when they started talking about them, I knew I wasn't part of that group. You know, because I wasn't there. I didn't yeah. work on those events. So I knew there was something that I wasn't a part of. And so I thought it would be really fascinating to be part of an expansion team and to, you know, take a blank sheet of paper and you build it from scratch. And uh, lo and behold, like I said, in my fourth year, the league had put together this plan to expand. And there were, I think, 11 or 12 groups that were applying. Uh, so you had no... For me, I had no idea who was going to get the teams, but I knew a person with a couple of the organizations, and one in particular was uh, Phil Esposito, the Hall of Fame player, uh, who was heading up a group that was trying to bring a team to Tampa. And at one point during the process, I mentioned to him, I said, yeah, I'd kind of like to go back to a team at some point, and you know, an expansion team would be a lot of fun. And it was just kind of a comment made in passing. Well, lo and behold, in December of 90, uh, it's the Board of Governor meeting in Florida where they're going to decide which of these groups are going to get teams. Uh, the decision was made to award teams to Phil's group and Ottawa. And as Phil was being escorted to the press conference where they were announcing it, now he knows he's being announced as a, a team, but he walked by me and said, you're going to love Tampa Bay. And <laughs> nice. It, it hit me like, wow, he remembered that conversation that we had had months ago, and it was a passing one. And literally within a month from then, uh, he was awarded the team, and he came to New York. We met, and I was in Tampa then within a month. Wow. And so 
two questions on that that I'm curious about. One is, what what was it like? So you you grow up in Buffalo. You're this Buffalo Saber fan. I'm trying to think of that experience, right? Like I'm trying to think. Okay, I grew up Denver Bronco fan. I can't imagine working for like you know the Seattle Seahawks or something. So now you you go to work for another team. Was that a little bit of a challenge? Because that you know that you have this favorite team in Buffalo, but you're working for a different team. Well, I know exactly what you're asking, but I think because it was new, it wasn't. I didn't view it that the way you're describing. Yeah. yeah. I was part of something that I was going to be able to help mold and shape yeah, and create exciting. from scratch. Yeah. That's so exciting. in a sense, this was going to be more of something I was a part of, yeah. uh, even though, you know, my heart never left Buffalo. And even to this day, I still pay attention to what the Sabres are doing. But the Tampa Bay opportunity was one where, hey, I'm getting to chart my own course, all these things that... Paul, my first boss in Buffalo, would tell me they created and started. I was going to have a chance to do that type of stuff in Tampa Bay. Gotcha. And that's and so my second question there, because I can't remember when Florida came into the league and was the, it was the year Tampa, after us. I was going to. OK, I was going to say, so was Tampa the first team in the South? Yeah, we were really the the pioneers, if you will. And there, there was I don't think we thought of it this way, but now in hindsight, like we had a lot of pressure yeah. that we had pressures of our own doing to deal with. We weren't really thinking of it on the macro scale as to what this means for the league. But now in hindsight, I'm like, wow, that was a really important franchise for the league because it was the first of the truly non-traditional markets. There was a team in LA, but that had been there for uh, 25 years already. Tampa Bay was going to be really the new frontier. And yeah. so uh, there was a lot riding on it and we just got at it. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a lot, a lot of challenges, uh, I well, will say. Uh, and I was going to ask you because you, this, I think, and I don't know if this is where it started in Tampa or, or later when you came to Nashville, but I think I was reading where kind of your playbook for an expansion franchise was to focus on basically community involvement and fundraising and that type of thing, but also the youth and kids hockey and, and getting them involved. And so I imagine when you're coming into Tampa and just the South in general, right, you probably had the same issue in Nashville. There's not exactly a lot of kids that grew up playing hockey. So is that is that a fair statement? Was that kind of the formula that you were trying to go for to, to help the, the, the organization succeed? It, it is a very fair statement because the reality was, I think there was uh, one or two sheets of ice in Tampa Bay. Yeah, so that was very limited was opportunity. Kind of talk about that too, uh, to piggyback off of that, like, because a lot of teams in the South obviously don't, like you said, they didn't grow up on hockey. But I think, I mean, there's a big issue around that that like it's hard to play hockey as a kid because equipment is expensive and it's hard to get ice. So you like, need ice, yeah. So like, you know, to kind of focus on that, like, how would you go about tackling that? Well, it's a great question, Brandon. And what we really tried to do was do things that frankly are done everywhere else with the other sports that people don't even give a second thought to hmm. and get people to realize you don't have to be on ice to experience hockey. You can play in your driveway. You yeah. can play at the community center. You know, how many of us are going to play basketball in Madison square garden? Right. How many of us are going to hit a home run in Dodger stadium? You know, we're all going to play these sports in our backyards 
first yeah. and foremost. But I think to that very question, you know, in places like Tampa, because they didn't have an NHL team, kids would never even think of playing hockey in the street. Like it, they weren't watching hockey on TV. They weren't going to NHL games. So there was no, there was nothing driving them to be their favorite NHL players. So our goal when we got to Tampa was we got to find ways to get more kids to play the game without that huge investment of buying skates and get running ice time in that. How do we get programs in the community? And so ironically, the league had started a program, a street hockey program where they were able to provide the, the NHL teams with sets of youth hockey, uh, street hockey equipment, you know, plastic goals or goals and plastic sticks and uh, balls and so on. And what we would do is we would go to area uh, boys and girls clubs, rec centers, and basically offer them the equipment in return for, you just make street hockey part of their curriculum and programming. We'll give you the equipment for free. And actually, we'll even come in and teach your administrators how to run it. And so that was a way to, to kind of expand the game before more rinks were going to be built. Because yeah. the idea of bringing an NHL team to a market, the thought that you're going to just have rinks pop up within a matter of weeks or months, I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, it's going to take years for community rinks to be built. So how do you get youngsters to play the game? And I remember, like, in about our second or third year, driving in a neighborhood or two in Tampa, and there were actually kids playing street hockey. And those were the moments to me that showed – we were making progress. Yeah. You know, for the attendance at the games is one thing, the the ratings on TV is another, but when you would drive neighborhoods and realize kids were playing street hockey instead of throwing a football or hitting a baseball, that means you're making an impact. So That's those cool. were some of those grassroots uh programs and projects that we tried to do uh, initially in Tampa and then they were really easy to kind of translate to here when we got That's to Nashville. Cool. Well, and I want to get to Nashville, but before we do, so I, I guess it's got to make you feel good too. Tampa Bay, which I'm sure you've had, uh, you had no small part in has kind of become a, a perennial powerhouse in, in hockey over the last several years. Um, they've been a successful franchise. And so is that where it was Terry? Now t- tell me about how you met Terry Crisp because that was in Tampa Bay, right? He did. Yep. Was he the, he was was a- he the first coach? He was our first coach, yeah. Uh, and he had joined us. Uh, he had been the head coach in Calgary, where they had won a Stanley Cup. Uh, but he was, so he was coming from a very different environment: Calgary hockey hotbed, high-profile team, Stanley Cup contender, lots of attention, lots of pressure. And now he's coming to Tampa Bay, where you know the only ice some people knew was what was in their drinks. Uh, <laughs> he's coaching a group of guys who are not going to be contending for the Stanley cup uh, in a non-traditional market. And we're going to be playing in a cow pavilion our first season because our, the, what ultimately is the current arena Amelie, it was not built until 1996. So we had to play four years in temporary buildings. So our first year was in a 10,000 seat building and, you know, uh, it was a transition for Terry, but he really handled it masterfully and became one of our greatest ambassadors. I mean, he had the ability to be an aggressive, uh, edgy coach 
during the games and in the locker room. But once we put him in front of the media or in front of the fans, he was like the mayor of Nashville, you know, mm-hmm. kissing babies, shaking hands, selling the game. And that's really what you needed. And similarly with our players, to be quite honest. I mean, we were, the expansion rules were not in 1991 and two, what they were for Las Vegas and for Seattle. Uh, we were getting 18th, 19th players on other teams. So they were guys who were either at the end of the road in many cases or had never played in the NHL, were looking for opportunities, were fringe minor leaguers. Uh, but what we did have is we had a couple of good veterans who understood their role that, you know, we were going to play hard, but their role was to also sell the game and yeah. be ambassadors for the sport. And so as much of their work was on the ice, they had to do a lot of work off the ice to help us sell the game. And, you know, that was something I tried to remember when we came to Nashville. And so I always like to give credit to the players like Tom Fitzgerald, who was our first team captain in Nashville and Greg Johnson and Kimo Timonen and Thomas Vokun, those guys who were the early guys that really set the tone for what this franchise was able to become. It was the same in Tampa Bay. Many of those guys were only there for a year, maybe two years, but they really did help set the tone for when they got really good players. The good players saw what the players before them had done and what the expectation was on and off the ice. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And so I was going to ask you, it was it down there that I've heard you talk about is ultimately Terry Crisp came with you to Nashville and became a broadcaster here. But before we get to that, is that I think I heard you talk about kind of you understood the importance of the broadcasters and the voice of the team. And was that something you did in Tampa as well in terms of selecting kind of who you wanted to be the voice of the team? Yeah, because to your question specifically, what you realize is early on with expansion teams, especially the way the rules were set up for your player acquisition, you know, your players were going to kind of come and go pretty quickly. The one constant was likely to be perhaps your coach, but more likely your broadcasters. Hmm. And they were going to be the people that introduced the sport to your market. And so the importance of them and for them to realize they could not just be the broadcasters, they had to be ambassadors, salesmen, they had to be out speaking at Kiwanis and Rotary meetings. They had to be hosting Hockey 101 sessions. They had to be doing a lot more than game broadcasts because they were going to be the one constant. Yeah. And so, yes, the hiring of the broadcasters was critically important. And uh, so when, when I did come to Nashville, Pete and Terry were two guys I knew from different experiences. Uh, I had worked with... Pete in Buffalo, we had overlapped. Uh, he was better known in Buffalo as the play-by-play guy for the baseball team, uh, mm. their AAA baseball team. But he was so talented and so well-versed, he had done all forms of radio and TV. He had done play-by-play, he had done color, he had done talk shows and so on. So I knew he was unflappable. He was good enough at what he did that he knew how to make someone else look good and be a star. So if we brought someone in who hadn't had a lot of background in this, he would elevate them and make them very comfortable. And he had a great personality and sense of humor. You know, he just, you know, with an expansion team, 
not everything's going to go right. You're, you're going to have complications, problems. So the last thing you want are broadcasters who are going to be prima donnas. Yeah. And Pete knew how to roll with the punches, was, like I said, unflappable. And yeah. Uh, yeah. so I think, you know, I think that this, like in particular, is very interesting because I don't think a lot of people really like realize how important that broadcaster is. And I think that the broadcaster in a lot of cases can kind of take on the personality of the city. And I like to use the Charlotte Hornets and the NBA announcer as an example. I don't know if either of you have heard him, mm -mm. but that dude is crazy. And he is like the perfect broadcaster for that city. Because if you remember, they were also an expansion team for the NBA and they were frankly garbage their first few years, but the fans were crazy and they loved it. And so he's like, I think Dwayne Wade, Dwayne Wade put it best. He said that the broadcaster, he makes every play feel like a game winner. And so I think to your point where you're like, they kind of lift up the players too, that maybe not a lot of people know that's another pretty important thing. Like they make like the smallest plays, especially this guy makes like the smallest plays just feel huge. Yeah. And that's just like, it, like watching a Charlotte Hornets, like local broadcasters, just like absolutely electric. Like yeah. it's so much fun. And like, well, that's really important for that city. Absolutely. Um, and I, and I got to tell you, it's funny because uh, Jerry Kelly, wife and I were talking about the, the Preds and, and, you know, now that um, I think it's well, it's I think it's happened probably a few times in the last few years. But I think this year when is it TNT that picked up some hockey games? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they'll be the Preds will be on a different station and it may not necessarily be our local broadcasters that we're used to hearing that'll be broadcasting the game. And so we'll watch the game and, and Kelly and I will always look at Kelly and be like, this isn't the Preds broadcasters. We need the Preds. Where are the Preds broadcasters? So it really does. You know, it creates the whole sort of ambiance mm -hmm. and personality the whole experience that you have and exactly and yeah. do you do you see because to that point like the fan part is important like we all we all like them and you see i'll use the charlotte hornets example again you see like signs in the crowd of like some of his like trademark like catchphrases like yeah. all the fans kind of know him and love him how important is that for the fans to kind of latch on to to that broadcaster and you know how did you did you see that happen kind of quickly in like tampa for example Yes, although we we did have a couple of changes, but ironically, the broadcaster who we brought in, I think in year three, uh, Rick Peckham, uh, who was another one, I knew him from a previous life. Uh, when I was in Buffalo, Rick was the play-by-play -play guy and PR director for Rochester, our farm team. So Rick and I had a personal relationship, and when we had a change after a couple of years, uh, Rick was available and I just thought he would be a great fit and it turned out he ended up spending 23 24 years in Tampa before he just retired a year or so ago and was award inducted into the wing of the broadcaster hall of fame in the NHL so I was pretty proud of of that and thankful yeah. but to, to the question absolutely they are important they connect with the community they are the link and to see Pete and Terry individually and the arena before the game even begins, how the fans come up to them yeah. and relate to them as, as if they're friends. Yeah. And, and again, uh, going back to when we were in Tampa Bay uh, working together and Terry became a dear friend, obviously, since uh, I encouraged him to come here, there was a point where he went up to Canada during the playoffs and did a little bit of broadcast there just for playoff coverage you know how they bring in special guests at the uh playoff time but i told terry i said you know this was at the heyday of john uh john madden 
on NFL broadcasts and Dick Vitale on college. I said, if you ever want to step away from coaching, I think you could be those people in hockey because yeah. he struck me all along as he was the guy everybody wanted to sit next to <laughs> at the bar and yeah. just talk hockey. Yeah. Just talk hockey. And he'd be honest. He'd be funny. He'd be passionate. And I thought if we could ever, if I could ever get him into a broadcast booth, I think he's going to be a hit. Absolutely. Well, to your point, I know our listeners won't be able to see this, but I don't know if I can show you. This is, uh, yeah. So that's uh, my daughter's fiance. Okay. And so Kayla and, and, and cause he's a big, he's a big hockey guy. He played hockey as a kid, loves hockey. And so they went to the game last night and uh, yeah, they took a picture. He got it, you know, got to, to, to meet Crispy and, and take a picture with him. So kind of to your point, just that interaction with the fans yep. and everybody loves Crispy. <laughs> yep. Um, I will ask. So you mentioned that um, you're trying to get obviously like a coach as your broadcaster, but you see a lot of broadcasters that are either like ex-players, ex-coaches or just broadcasters. And like, that's what they do. Did you like look for like any of those particular roles specifically or were you just kind of just finding people that you just thought would be a great fit just in general well it'd be selfish if i said i was looking for my friends <laughs> which is what pete and terry were mm -hmm. uh but no the, the reality i think for the play-by-play -play position it's there aren't too many former players or coaches who've ever trained to be play-by-play -play people right. so that tends to be more likely a broadcaster professional if you will um your color analyst, I think, you know, there's no right or wrong. It's personal preference and that other than I think it has to be someone who can relate to the fans and can both educate and entertain. And it sounds kind of simple, but I think you can see the difference with a Terry Crisp versus a lot of other people. I mean, Terry can do it. It's natural. You know, he knows the game, obviously, uh, but it's his personality that shines through yeah. in how he analyzes things and so on. And then there are others, you know, I can look around the various leagues and that I've seen a lot of former players get into it and they haven't brought the passion. They seem to think they can just show up and because they're former player X, that's enough. Doing a broadcast is work. Yeah. And you do have to prepare. You yeah. do have to know the game. You have to study. You have to talk to people so that you can bring some stories to light for the for the viewer or yeah. the listener, depending on which medium you're using. So uh, I can't say that there's a strict formula that this is how it's got to be, because uh, to your point, I, I don't watch the Charlotte games, but I understand exactly what you're saying. He connects with their audience. Yeah. Um, Pete and Terry connect with the Nashville audience and we can go around the various leagues. And there are some who do a great job of connecting. There are others who, you know, they, they're good, but they're just not connecting the way yeah. some people are with personality and passion. So let, let's talk about now you come into the Preds because that's our local, we are the 615 collectors, what we call ourselves, <laughs> 615 being the area code for Nashville. And although I do have to ask, so it's another expansion team. And so I don't know if there was sort of until like, hey, Jerry becomes the expansion specialist here. Uh, but and then did you and one question before we get into that, too, is 
given what the league has done with the new expansion teams, you know, in Vegas and Seattle, did you go to them and say, Hey guys, where was this when we were doing? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I try not to look back. Yeah. Um, And and yet I, I will put my league hat back on to a degree. I think they should have done more for us earlier. Yeah. Uh, But I do think what they did for Vegas and Seattle was the right thing. Uh, having lived through the growing pains when you don't have a whole lot of players uh, to contend with. I mean, it is an uphill struggle. And when you're going into these non-traditional newer markets, trying to tell people in this day and age, hey, we're going to do it the right way. We're going to draft and develop. So, (laughs) you know, it's going to take us five, six years to be competitive. Well, we're in a world that, Five or six years is a lifetime now. Yeah, nobody wants to wait. Yeah, uh, and so I I have seen it with several of our expansion brethren where I think every team in the last forty years has come into whatever sport it is, saying we're going to take it slow and steady. We're going to build from within. We're going to draft and develop, and almost without fail, within two to three years, either the owner panicked the fans panicked or the media panicked and demanded we got to get better quicker yeah and so all these thoughts of a plan went out the window and they start you know throwing money against the wall trying to bring in free agents and the reality is at that stage of your development it's not usually going to work i can point to numerous teams that tried it it didn't work i will say we were one of the few with david poyle at the helm that we stuck with our game plan and it did not come without some challenges. Yeah. You know, we had the, we had sellouts the first and second year. And then because we still were not as competitive as some people might've liked attendance dropped a little bit. Uh, but we continued on our game plan and lo and behold, by year six, we made the playoffs and David's thinking all along was we want to get to where once we start making the playoffs, we are a consistent playoff team. Yeah. And you look at our history from 2006 on, we have been a consistent team because we stuck with that initial building plan. Now there've been some alterations obviously, but, uh, but to your point, yeah, I, I think the league did the right thing for Seattle and Vegas, giving them a more competitive opportunity from the get go, especially when they were charging them 500 million in Vegas's case and 650 million in Seattle's. But when I look back at the growing pains that we went through in Tampa Bay and then here in Nashville, it would have been nice to have had a little better starting point. But having said that, it also created some great memories of how we built it. And we, we really became the little engine that could in both cases, because we, we didn't have the resources and we had to be creative and, uh, and just build it step by step. So what was it that ultimately brought you to Nashville? Was it, uh, you know, you were in Tampa and then the league announced they're going to make this expansion. And did they recruit you? Did you throw your hat in the ring and say, hey, I'd like to go do that? It it was more on my side because uh, Tampa Bay, we had just finished our first season in the brand new arena. Uh, We had made the playoffs the year before, but the team was about to be sold. And I was pretty realistic that given what we had gone through, a new owner was probably going to come in and want to bring their own management team in. 
So I would probably be at risk whether I was doing a great job or not a great job. Uh, it just happened to coincide with expansion and the league announced for the four teams. And I happened to a gentleman who was our team governor in Tampa Bay was a longtime uh, New Yorker, uh, Ranger ticket holder, and a good friend of Jack Diller, who had just been named the first president of the Predators. And I went to David Lefevre and I said, hey, I would have some interest in Nashville. Could you make a call to Jack? Uh, and he was uh, very kind and generous, made a call to Jack. I came up and met with Jack and uh, David and joined the team within a couple of months. And uh, that's how I got here. And I really, in looking at the four markets, I really thought Nashville was the most attractive for me. I liked the fact that it was a smaller market back then. <laughs> it's obviously grown a lot, uh, but it was a smaller market. And uh, I was always a believer that a hockey team could have a bigger impact in a smaller community than in a bigger one because you could connect with your fans, have a lot more interaction and uh, personal connections, if you will. And so I, it was the most appealing of the markets to me to begin. And then the fact that Jack was uh, willing to bring me on made it even better. That, yeah, that's great. And, you know, there is an important lesson there aside from sports. And ultimately, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, collectible world as well. But uh, important lesson there just about the relationships that you build and develop in throughout your career and, and, and how that can, can help you out along the way as well. That's, that's, that's a good, um, a good lesson. All right. So obviously you had a very long and very uh, successful career. Um, I want to ask like, what were some of the things that you enjoyed the most and on the flip side, some of the things that you liked the least, maybe like, you know, specific things that you got to or had to do, whether that be when you were in Buffalo or, or Nashville or whatever. Um, you know, some of the things that kind of stand out to you uh, as far as that goes. I'll start with the easy one, the things I don't like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, being a PR person and more of a writing background, I always hated budgets. Yeah. I hated dealing with finances and stuff <laughs> like that. I didn't like dealing with HR-related issues or legal matters. Now, I would have to deal with them if they were PR-related. Yeah. But on a day-to-day -day basis, that was it, was, it was probably one of the things that kept me where I was as opposed to pursuing other positions because I knew they weren't things that interested me, but they, they were important aspects of the business. I mean, the reality is the business doesn't operate without the revenues and expenses uh, being in, in order. But I, you know, the, the neat thing about PR was you usually had a fairly fixed budget. There were things you had to do. Uh, you didn't have a lot of discretionary decisions because most of what you were asking for didn't involve money. So I hated those type of things. What I loved was working with all the people I got to work with. Um, you know, and what we've kind of touched on is one of the great things about being in this business is if you're in it long enough, you got more stories than just about anybody else because yeah. you do get to interact with the players, the coaches, uh, the media, you're the touch point with, for your organization with probably more different groups of people that your organization is interacting with than any other department. You're going to interact internally with your sponsorship people, with your ticketing folks. 
with all the other people in the office. But then on the external side, you're going to interact with sponsors. You're going to interact with uh, media, local and national. Uh, you're going to interact with the league people, your players, your coaches, and so on. So, you know, getting to interact with all those people uh, is really what makes it all worthwhile. And uh, I was fortunate because of what I was able to do. I really never viewed, I, I, you work a lot in this industry, and it's probably what takes a lot of people out of the industry at some point is they decide they want a more traditional lifestyle. I was okay with this lifestyle for as long as I did it, but it has to be a passion. And if it is, I don't think you ever view it as work. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I certainly know enough of my colleagues and other friends who, you know, they may be making a lot more money, uh, but I don't know that they're getting as much personal enjoyment as I was able to get out of my my days and years working in this yeah, industry. Absolutely, no mm -hmm. question. That's that's good. That's good advice. Hey, and so quick question on the finances, and you can plead the fifth if you want on this, and you don't have to. But because I've always wondered about professional sports teams in general, I feel like on the one hand you see the valuations of these teams, and you realize the you know, and you see the revenue that the league and some and some of the teams take in. But you also see some of the salaries of the players and everything. And so there's always been a part of me that felt like there's not necessarily money to be made in the annual income of the teams. It's more about the valuation of the asset that you're building. Is there any truth to that? I mean, do the teams in general, again, without disclosing anything that you can't, you know, do the teams have make, are they profitable on a year to year basis or is. Well, I, I think it would differ from market to market and sport to sport. Okay. I mean, the, the big market teams, by and large, are going to be successful no matter what, because yeah. they can charge more for tickets. They can charge more for sponsorship. Their broadcast rights are going to generate way more money than smaller markets, if you will. But if you think back to when Craig Leopold, the first owner of this team, sold it, part of the reason he was selling at the time he did was the team had lost in each of the previous several years, a total of about $70 million. Mm. Uh, and he just wasn't willing to continue losing that kind of money on an annual basis. Yeah. The ironic thing is when he sold it, he sold it for way more than he had bought it. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, there was a payoff there at the end, but had he chosen to keep sell, retain ownership, who knows how much more he would have lost going yeah. forward. And, you know, honestly, who knows how the franchise would have uh, gone forward. I mean, I think not that it was going to move per se, but maybe it was time for a new ownership to come in and try some, some different yeah. things. But, yeah. but yeah, to your point, I think, you know, the big market teams are probably going to be profitable year to year, smaller markets. It's going to vary based on uh, some of those variables that, you know, again, the challenge for some owners is, They've all been successful in different businesses, but generally in businesses where they could somewhat control the outcome Yeah. versus you come into sports and you're at the mercy of your top players being your top players, your players staying healthy and not getting injured, you getting the right call or a lucky break here or there. Yeah. I mean, you, you can look in the history of sports and look at the fate of teams based on the bounce of a ball or a puck and whether they, you know, went on to win a championship. And we all know what that means revenue wise. Uh, 
uh, versus getting knocked out in the first round. Yeah. Uh, so, well, I know you said you don't like budgets, so we, and I'm sure our listeners don't necessarily want to talk finances, so we'll move <laughs> off of that topic, but I was, I was just curious about that. Um, so there are a lot of things you were involved with a lot of things here in Nashville, not just with the predators, but with the league in general. And, you know, you were involved with the Olympic team in 2010, you were involved with the draft, bringing the draft to Nashville. And we will all Brandon wants to also ask you about some of the all-star uh, stuff that you've been involved with. Uh, before I do that though, I'm just curious, you were talking about the stories and, you know, the players and the coaches, any kind of behind the scenes, you know, stories, memorable moments, whatever it might be that you can share with us. Um, we are a family friendly show, <laughs> but that you could share with us. Um, well, well, maybe people don't hear that often or, you know, peek behind the curtain. Gosh, it, it's on the spot. So I don't, I never come up with as many as I will an hour from now, sure. but I, I can remember uh, showing how you grow a fan base or the challenges of it. You know, when we first got here, a lot of our ticket holders were Detroit Red Wings fans, hmm. because if you remember in the 90s, that Saturn plant had relocated yeah. to south of Nashville. And yeah. so a lot of people had come here from Detroit. So, you know, we were happy to have them as our fans, as our mes message to them was, hey, you can come in here and root for the Red Wings for their three visits here, but just root for us, the other 38, <laughs> and that'll help us in a, in yeah. a great way. But so I can remember we played Detroit the very first time and uh, our players go out for warm up. And I think they were a little bit bewildered by how many Detroit Red Wing fans were in the stands <laughs> and they come off the ice after warm up. So they're in the locker room, you know, kind of that last couple of minutes before going into the game. And one of the players on our team stood up and said, all right, guys, first thing we got to do is we got to take the crowd out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice in your home stadium. Yeah. Not, not something you do in your own building very often. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's really funny. That's great. Um, okay. Well, I'll, I know Brandon's been wanting to ask about, cause we, we saw some uh, interesting things doing our homework on your involvement with the all-star game. So Brandon, go ahead. Yeah. And I think, so I think it's interesting because a lot of, sports i think struggle to do like interesting things with like their all-star weekend in terms of competitions and i think that's just because it's kind of hard to do it with certain sports and i think basketball and hockey in particular are two sports where like you have a lot of different things you can kind of work with and so i know that you helped kind of introduce some of like the skills competition stuff like the fastest skater and like hardest shot so can you just like talk about that and kind of explain like maybe how some of those ideas came about maybe some stuff that maybe you wanted to do that didn't come about well that, that actually goes back to when i was at the league mm -hmm. uh because that was in the 87 and 91 range and the the first skills event was uh the all-star game in pittsburgh which was i think 1990 and you know this was right on the heels the nba had started the the dunk comp contest and the three-point shooting which were really brilliant on their part because they were parts of the game. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of challenged, you know, we had always been playing our all-star game on a Tuesday night, you know, middle of the week and it was a one night thing. So the thought was, how do we move it to the weekend and can we create a skills event? And, you know, other people did more of it than me. Uh, I had a role in it because I was the one person 
who had worked at teams. So I, I had some uh, interaction with players on that if, if we needed. So, you know, the obvious things when we were going to create a skills competition was a fastest skater, hardest shot. Now, the challenge for us uh, as a league was our greatest player was Wayne Gretzky. And anybody who watched Wayne, you know, Wayne was the greatest player because of his all-around skills and knowledge and smarts. Nobody ever confused him with the fastest skater in the game or the hardest shooter. So we were kind of conflicted with, you know, how are you going to put on a skills event when your greatest player is not necessarily going to excel in your skills events? Yeah. So... You know, we had uh, a lot of back and forth, so we created some other, we created events like a breakaway relay and a, uh, I'm trying to relay races uh, with uh, two forwards and a, a defenseman that, you know, other players could participate in. So it was, we had to be creative. Uh, the other part of it is we did create a an old timers game. And again, that was, that was one I really had a lot of fun in because Again, I was one of the. I was able to be one of the point persons. We had also brought in uh, former player Brian Watson, uh, who had some player connections, and we were the ones who kind of helped put the rosters together and make the the invitations and that. And, uh, th- that was great fun being a part of that. But putting that first event on uh, again in Pittsburgh, you know, for the hardest shot and the fastest skater, we were using these radar guns. And what I remember is. They were very imperfect at the time, (laughs) very primitive, Uh, but we had already made a commitment. We're going to do this event. And so we were doing rehearsals the couple of days before, and I didn't sleep. I don't think those three nights before the skills event, because the radar guns were only registering maybe 70% or so of the time. And if you can imagine what that would look like on national TV, Hmm. uh, so-and-so just fired one, but we don't know how fast it was. (laughs) Uh, We're going to give him a do-over. As luck would have it on the event day, it wasn't perfect, but it was a higher percentage of of working than, uh, than all the rehearsals had been. So it turned out okay. It was a starting point, a launching pad, if you will. And again, it was one of those things, and I've said this about the expansion markets, uh, but All-Star was similar. Most of the new ideas come from the newer markets because they have to be willing to try new things. They they don't have history and tradition to rely on to sell their product. They have to try new things. And so, you know, a lot of the, the new ideas in our sport come from newer markets. And, you know, in the NHL back in the late 80s, we were still – we had to try new things to to kind of grow the business. Yeah. Let me, we are, we do talk a little bit about collectibles on the show. And so I do want to, I want to talk more about the Preds, but I also want to, I don't know how, how much you collected as a kid or as an adult, um, but the, the sports card market, it's particular, but memorabilia and other things as well has really gone crazy over the last couple of years. Would it surprise you? So you were talking about Wayne Gretzky. Um, he has, you know, rookie cards of players tend to be the uh, the more expensive ones. So Wayne Gretzky's 1979 is his rookie card. He has an Opeachy and a Tops. And I don't know if it, maybe it wouldn't surprise you to know, but that his 
his Opeachy 1979 rookie card recently sold for nearly $4 million. Yeah, I don't have one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you do any collecting as a kid, of, whether it was you know, cards or I, otherwise? I think like a lot of people of my generation, we did collect as kids, but we never saw them as a value. Right. It was just collecting for the sake of, hey, I got this guy, I got that guy. And then as we got older, we tossed them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Which is the why they're so I, valuable now, right? I mean, so the things I had as a kid, I no longer have. Early in my pro career, I didn't feel it was appropriate to be collecting. I thought, you know, I'm the PR guy. I can't be asking for this yeah. and that. So I didn't do very much. But then as I got into the 90s and the collection business really did take off, I did start to collect things. And, and I did start to collect through different means. Uh, we were talking earlier about we have auctions at our various events and we'll get jerseys from top players and that. So I would, you know, bid and buy some of those things. Uh, I, one thing I did collect, and then in the early 90s, Upper Deck had just gotten into hockey. I don't yeah. think they had done much hockey cards before then. So they sent people like me, we got some of their initial sets. Nice. And so I have them. I haven't opened them. I have them stocked away somewhere. And so I don't even know what their, their value is at this juncture. Oh my um, goodness, Jerry, I can tell you, I'm sure they are very valuable. You'll need to get them out and take a look at them at some point. Maybe <laughs> not open them. They're probably more valuable sealed than they are open, but yeah. Uh, but one of my, my favorite things is, uh, so my first job in Buffalo, four months into my, my start there, back at that stage, there would be Russian teams that would come over and tour. They would go to various NHL cities, play four or five games on a tour. So they were going to come to Buffalo in uh, January of 1980. And my boss says, uh, okay, your job is you're the liaison with the Russian team. Hmm. And I'm thinking, what do I do with the Russian team? And I'm thinking, well, okay, I'll just wing it. So uh, basically it was just to make sure they got to Niagara Falls and got to see the falls and, you know, do yeah. their stuff and so on. So we, we get to game day, and I was told that they love to trade. The players love to trade. They love stuff with your team logo in that. So I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get to do this again, so I ought to trade something. So I go put together a little goodie bag of Sabres things, like a table, pen, and pencil set, and what have you, and I go down to uh, their interpreter, and I said, hey, I'd like to – could I make a trade for a, a player stick or something? Well, lo and behold, he brings out Valerie Karlamov, who may mean nothing to you, but at that time he was considered one of the greatest players in the world. Hmm. Uh, and he's not a very big guy, but he comes out and I've got my stuff and that, and he looks at it and he's, yeah, this is great. Goes back and he brings me out a stick. Wow. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, that was pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, here I just I just traded a, a bag of goodies and I got a stick from one of the greatest players in the world. <laughs> nice, yeah, that's cool. So I, that is one of my most prized possessions that I still have to this very day. Very uh, cool. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm right there with you on that because I uh, although it's not not of that nothing of that stature, but just being a Preds fan, I showed you before we started recording. I've got a 
a, a stick in here of, of Pecorine, who is our, you know, in Nashville is probably one of the most beloved uh, predators uh, in, in, in town. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a prized possession for myself. So I can certainly understand that. So what, what, I mean, talk about that. Maybe some of the players that, you know, Nashville has had a lot of, you know, from Shay Weber and Brian Suter, who I think were maybe part of the, if I recall, they were part of the 03 draft that you yep. um, helped bring to town. And then, you know, obviously Pekka and, and some of the modern day players with Johansson and uh, Forsberg and, you know, Duchesne, obviously Soros is, is doing fantastic. Um, and then, you know, guys like PK Subban that have come through town. I mean, what, you know, just maybe just talk about some of the, the players that have, that have come through Nashville and what they were like and your experiences with them. Well, I have always said this throughout my career. I've been fortunate to work in hockey because I think we tend to uh, be blessed with the best people. Our players are really good in yeah. terms of they understand they are more than hockey players. They are ambassadors for their organization and for their sport. And that with that comes the responsibility to be active in their community. And, you know, we saw it with uh, Shea Weber and Pekka Rene forming the 365 club that raises money on a regular basis. And even as they're gone, it continues uh, to raise money for the Monroe Carroll Junior Children's Hospital. Uh, P.K. Subban, when he was here, uh, if you remember, that was, you know, at the time of some social issues, he wanted to put together a pro develop a program that would link the police with uh, the community. And so we were able to kind of combine forces and create what we call the blue line buddies where uh, every game, a youngster from a, a organization, often boys and girls clubs, groups like that, and a police officer would meet at the game. Uh, they would meet PK before the game. Then PK would have paid for a dinner for them up in our private club. They would have dinner together, and then they would watch the game together. And PK's purpose was, I want to foster interaction and communication so that both know a little bit more about each other and where they fit in and so on. And we have been able to continue that program even when PK left. Uh, but I go back to what we started earlier is, you know, the foundation of what the guys today do was laid by the Tom Fitzgeralds, the Thomas Vokuns, and so on. The guys who were here early on were not necessarily Hall of Fame players, but they did the work in the community to kind of set the tone so that as we got, quote, better players, if you will, we were always able to say, well, this is what we've done all along. So you have to be part of that. And yeah. to their credit, by and large, they have almost all bought into it. Yeah. Uh, and so That's they're awesome. very giving. Uh, you know, we, the organization does several community events that are fundraisers, if you will, a gala ball, a golf tournament, and the players are willing participants and attendees at those things. They sign, I don't know how many items three or four times a year that we use for auctions, for giveaways. You know, there's a lot of organizations in town that they're doing their own little fundraisers and they're looking for auction items. I think you mentioned it with your, your daughter. Yeah. Uh, we try to support as many of those as we can. The only way we can do it is because the players are willing to sign the items and yeah. help us make it happen. That's very cool. Yeah, it's one of the things I've always loved about sports. It's, it has such a unifying 
characteristic to it. It always seems like, you know, no matter whatever is happening in the world, everyone enters through those, you know, turnstiles, whatever you want to say, into the stadium or into the building or arena, whatever. And and all of a sudden, all that goes out the window and we're all just fans of the team that we're rooting for. And, you know, it's just so unifying. I, I love that aspect of it. And I'm curious because we talked about the boom and, and the Preds, and I think you've been pretty heavily involved with their fundraising and foundation work and involvement in the community. Have you seen, you know, we talked about the boom in collectibles over the last couple of years. And have you all seen that in your fundraising? Cause you, you guys do sell a lot of, or auction a lot of memorabilia and things like that. Have you seen a big uptick? It's been a consistent growth. Yeah. Uh, it, it's funny. We do uh, on game nights, there's a game night auction. It's run out of a CR booth on the concourse, but initially we would raise, I don't know, $130,000, $150,000 through our auction uh, through the course of the season. Uh, I think a year or two ago, that number was about $700,000. Nice. Now, in fairness, the people who do our community relations work, they have been aggressive in identifying new items, different items, yeah. uh, multiple items, but also we have put the auctions now on game night online. So yeah. if you're not even at the game, you can participate in tomorrow's game auction, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that has really helped us grow. And so, you know, there's a lot of other teams that are able to do these 50-50 raffles that are huge fundraisers for them. We are not able to because gambling is not allowed gotcha. or raffles yeah. and that are not allowed yeah. in Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big hole that would be great for us to still be able to tap into. Yeah. But our game night auction is pretty, uh, pretty important to our, our foundation work. Well, congrats to you and all the folks involved with that. It does. It, it is a great, um, um, a, you know, a great thing. And I can attest because I've participated in many of those auctions myself. I have a number of Preds gear and things. In fact, I, I bought a set of uh, signed Parkhurst cards from, I think that was the year the Preds went to the Stanley Cup finals. Oh, okay. And I've got some, you know, some pucks and sticks and other things. And so I do participate. They do a really good job. To your point, you can, you know, they text you on your mobile phone. You can yep. participate through that way. It's, a, it's, it's really well done and a lot of quality stuff in there that people can get. And then, and it's also great to know you're supporting, you know, the, the charities and local community and in, in doing that. So that's fantastic. Okay. Well, let's see. All right. Well, well, let's do this. I have, well, I have one last question Go for it. and maybe we can end on this. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I had to ask, Oh, what, what city has your favorite fans that you've worked in? Mm, good question. That I've worked in. Well, that's a that's a trick. You question. don't have to answer it if you don't want to. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm actually trying I'm trying to be thoughtful um, in my response. Um, I, I will tell you. Let me maybe point out the differences from my perspective. You know, Buffalo is a very traditional market, and as I learned, you know, they go to the games back even when I was there. We had a very good team, so we could win a game five to three, and there'd be fans that would be disappointed because we didn't win by a big enough score or we didn't, mm -hmm. we weren't artistic enough in our wins um, and almost taking for granted the skills that were there. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest things of coming to Tampa Bay and then Nashville was watching how many fans were coming to games for the first time. And even if they were repeat fans, 
how much they were just in awe of the spectacle of the game. They, they were just blown away by the speed of the game, by the sounds of the game. And then on top of that, probably more so in Nashville, by the game presentation that made it a total entertainment experience. And, and again, that goes back to, I think, in both markets, you know, realizing as an expansion team, you may not be competitive early on, but if you're going to sell the game, you need to make the experience such that a fan walks out of the game and the result didn't matter. I had such a good time. I'm coming back, win or lose. In in the more traditional markets, it's almost, well, if they didn't win, I don't really care if I come back. I don't have to come back until I see them win more. Whereas the newer markets, that's one of the great, that was one of the great joys of coming to the new markets is seeing the people appreciate it once you got them into the building. And that was always the challenge, getting people to take a chance on it that hadn't necessarily watched hockey previously. But our thought was always, if we can get them in once, it's kind of like the old Lay's potato chip uh, commercial. You won't be able to go to just one. You'll want to come back. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you asked that, Brandon, because that's we found we've gone to a lot of Preds games and the experience of going to a game is so fun. And you all do such a great job of all the different elements. And like you said, the sounds and the, just everything, the experience of the whole game and all the little, you know, thanks Paul. And, you know, and, and, uh, and the, you know, the, the, when there's someone in the penalty box, the different sound effects and the different things that that the, uh, the crowd says. And so one question I had for you on that, how much of all that experience is driven by you and the team sort of creating those? And how much of that does the league say, hey, we want all of our teams to you know, do these types of things or whatever? Or is that truly a team-by-team effort? Uh, it, it's largely a team-by-team effort. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because I think the league realizes that every market's a little different. Um, and you know, you have to do at, at the end of the day, you're responsible for your own attendance. Yeah. Uh, the leagues never sold a ticket. Uh, yeah. I mean, they obviously they've sold them for winter classics and things like that. But the reality is the teams are the driving force of selling tickets. So yeah. they have to put on their events and kind of to give you a, a, a little bit of a, an example is when Vegas was coming into the league, my counterpart with them called and just said, Hey, tell me a little bit about what you did in Nashville and Tampa. And cause we're trying to figure out what to do. And I said, well, I'll tell you exactly what we did in both places. And some were similar, some were different, but the most important thing you want to do is make sure you understand your own market and what will work there. Yeah. Cause I can tell you three things that worked in Nashville. They may, they may flop yeah. in Vegas. Yeah. And I can show you two things that worked in Tampa. One of them might work there, but one may flop. You got to figure out, you know, what your market really wants. And I think that's what we were able to do in both Tampa and, uh, and Nashville is some things were similar, but there were a lot of things that were very different. And, you know, I look back like Fang Fingers was one of those things that we served it up on the very first game. Uh, People probably have forgotten we served up about six other things. Hmm. Those six other things have been long gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Fang Fingers has Fang Fingers lived stuck around from day one. Yeah. Uh, the Tim McGraw, I like it, I love it song. I like it, I love it song. That yeah. was one we we started early on, and there was a point 
eight, nine years ago where some people thought maybe we ought to transition away and try something new. Well, the fan base basically delivered a pretty powerful message. No, that is our song. (laughs) We want that to be part of our game. And so it continues. So, so to your point, the fan base plays a role and some of some things then happen almost spontaneously and they're actually the best things. Uh, and, and I think of, uh, the year after the team was sold, we had lost a batch of players, but we were still competitive, fighting to get in, try to get into the playoffs. And as we got into the last handful of games, uh, we had a really important home game, and we were down a goal or two, but we had mounted a comeback, and we were almost ready to tie it up. And it was like the last TV timeout of the third period. And the fans almost could sense how hard the team was working, and that was the beginning of the spontaneous standing ovation hmm. during an entire TV timeout. Like, we didn't play music. We didn't show any clever videos. We simply allowed the fans to, and then we came back and won that game. Yeah. And it almost became a thing. That That's cool. You're like, when are the fans going to do it tonight? But it was always after a little bit of a surge. And it was almost like it was the good luck charm. Yeah. And it was that little extra oomph to get the team over the hump. That's cool. Uh, and again, that's one, you know, teams will spend months working on game presentation things that they think are going to be huge hits. The reality is some of the best ones are the ones the fans do on their own. The spontaneous, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. I love the let it be with the cell phone light when the ref is reviewing yep. a play. Or And the other one that I've always thought is funny since we're in the South and, you know, supposed to be the Southern hospitality is how, you know, when we score and then there's that chant about, you know, to the other goalie and you suck, you know, <laughs> welcome to Nashville. You know, but. It's fun. The Preds have done a fantastic job, and I know you've been a big part of that with the experience. And so, um, congratulations on all on all the success that uh, you and, and the team have had there. All right, I know we've run long, so we probably do, I guess, need to wrap up. Although, you know, to be honest, I I could you know still have a lot of things. Look, I would love we can to. we can maybe have him back. At yeah, some maybe point. we can have we you can back have at some point. That'd be an honor to be a, a return guest. So I do. Yeah. Return guest. There you go. So I do. Okay. Give me like two more questions. Oh, oh so one I want to ask is <laughs> I, right. I did read somewhere. You can splice it into two pieces. There you go. Yeah, I did read somewhere, Jerry. And, and so, and I think I know the answer because I read about it, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. And, and I'm curious if it followed you. So I heard in Buffalo that you developed the nickname, the beaver. Can, <laughs> is that, does that, is that still a thing or did, what? No, that was just in Buffalo. And okay. again, I was, uh, I, I was a young guy in the office, and it wasn't that far removed from the uh, Leave It to Beaver TV show. Yeah, and yeah. I had considerably more hair than I have now, okay. uh, and so Paul Wieland, uh, he he liked to give everybody nicknames, and that became mine while I was in Buffalo. But once I left Buffalo, I was able to kind of leave that behind. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. And the la- I guess the last question I'll ask you about, we were, again, bringing maybe back a little bit to collectibles. We talked about the Wayne Gretzky card. Some of the other players that have seen, you know, their cards go up in value by quite a bit, or probably some of the ones you'd expect. Sidney Crosby, very popular. We call it the hobby in the sports card world, but so he's very popular in the hobby. Uh, Alexander Ovechkin is another one. Uh, you know, Connor McDavid, obviously, uh, is a big one as well. 
So I'm curious from your perspective, do you, I don't know how much you keep up with the players uh, throughout on other teams and whatnot throughout the league, but do you have some kind of favorite young players that you think are potential stars to watch for the future? Well, he's already a star, but uh, Austin Matthews, Austin Matthews, uh, yeah. guy in Toronto is going to score 60 goals this year. Yeah. Uh, another guy who's not a kid per se, but you know, he just played here in Nashville the other night, scored a hat trick. And uh, I don't think a lot of people outside of Edmonton know him as Leon Dreisaitl. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. He's got 55 goals. And I think if he did not, if he played away from Connor McDavid, I think he'd be viewed as one of the top five, seven players in the game. That's interesting. Um, yep. I, I think another one who uh, to kind of keep an eye on, he just signed with Buffalo after his uh, college season, Owen Power. Okay. Uh, he was the number one overall pick a year ago. So I think he's, he's a big rangy defenseman who seems to have, you know, a, a game suited for the way the game is played today. Yeah. Uh, trying to think beyond that. Uh, I mean, we're, we're blessed right now. There are so many good young players. Uh, yeah. coming into our game agreed yeah and on on almost any given night there's a really top level player on yeah. every team uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Dre saddle we're actually going to be talking about him we've talked about him a couple times on prior shows but we're going to be talking about it again because him and uh, mcdavid are both over 100 points this year this season and i think that's the first time we've had two players over 100 points in in many years it doesn't happen that often no it's you know we we got away from it back in the 80s it was very common you know the gretzky lemieux messier heyday uh but then again because in the 90s and so on you didn't have a salary cap and so some teams were spending a lot of money other teams didn't have money and so the, the way to counter that was play a clutch and grab, uh, slow the skill guys down because the referees aren't going to be able to call every penalty. And what it did was it kind of brought the skill level down, frankly. And one of the great things that Gary Bettman and the league have done over the last 15 years is the implementation of the salary cap has also allowed the teams to be more skill focused. Hmm. And, you know, you look, top to bottom team, young players skate like crazy. I mean, th this kid in uh, Anaheim, Trevor Zegras. Yeah. Is another one we've, to keep We've an talked eye about on. him. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he's able to do things with the puck that, you know, we, you, you would normally only think of guys doing in practice when they're goofing around. Right. He's, he's pulling these things off in games. It's funny you say that because we talked about one of the goals he scored that you may have seen on, on the show where he was behind the net and he just picked up the, the, the puck with his stick and reached around and dropped yep. it into that. <laughs> like, yep. and, and ironically, just the other day, I saw a piece of video uh, from a youth hockey uh, rink. A seven-year-old kid was doing it nice. in yeah. a game. Nice. And, you know, that's that to me is one of the great signs for going forward that we're now emphasizing the skill again. And that's, that translates down to the very lowest form of entry level hockey to where now that's what the kids want to do. Yeah. They don't want to hook and hold. They want to show their skills. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Well, 
Look, Jerry, we kept you a long time and you've been a good sport about sticking around and, and sharing stories with us. So thank you for, for agreeing to come on and, and tolerate us and join us and, and, uh, and tell your stories. It's been an absolute blast to, to chat with you and congrats on your career in hockey and uh, hope you uh, enjoy your retirement days. And obviously, I imagine you're going to stay somehow connected to the game. I, I can only imagine. I suspect I will. And I yeah. look forward to it. It's a great game and great people, as I said. And again, both uh, both Doug and Brandon, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I would be happy to do this again uh, at an appropriate time uh, at your convenience. Uh, that's great. We definitely will have to have you back on at some point. All right. Well, that is the show for today. That was the part one of the interview with Jerry Helper. As we talked about, hopefully we'll be having him back for part two. where We can get more into some things that we weren't able to cover today. Absolutely, yeah. I would love to talk a little bit more. He had some experience with the 2010 Olympic hockey team. Uh, the Olympics were in Vancouver that year, so we'd love to talk to him more about that. want to talk to him more about some just of some of his different experiences with the Preds. We didn't get as much into some of the Nashville stuff. Like for example, uh, he was instrumental in bringing the NHL draft to Nashville in 2003. Would love to talk about the Stanley Cup Finals run. I think that was in what 2017 was that when I they made that, that run? I think that was 2017. Yeah. 2017 when they made their run to the Stanley Cup Finals. So would love to chat with him about that. And you know, and then COVID too. The the shortened COVID season. Would love to kind of hear you know, the insider's perspective on what happened there and a number of different things, a lot of other things that we wanted to get with Jerry. So we're going to have him back for part two at some point, but hope everyone enjoyed that interview. It's a, it's a fascinating, you know, story. He's a fascinating guy with a lot of interesting stories and, and had a very uh, unique and, and fun career. So we were thrilled to have him on the show and pre- appreciate him coming on and being willing to chat with us. So Brandon, go ahead and take us out. All right. Yeah. We guys hope you enjoyed the show today. As we uh, say at the top, please reach out to us. Let us know what you like or don't like or things you'd like to hear more about. We do love to hear from you guys and get your feedback so we can make the show better and more enjoyable. Also, remember to check us out on social media. Like and subscribe to our channels, all that stuff, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and check out our website, www.the615collector.com, and subscribe to our email list. Yeah, and please tell all your family and friends about us as well. Encourage them to listen to the show. We would appreciate that. And that's it. That's the show. Another show is in the books. Thanks again, everyone. And we will see you all next Friday, same time, same place here on the 615 Collector.